All right. Welcome to the weekly sit rep. Uh, it's great to be back. I'm Wyatt Frazier. I'm a second year at Wharton, former U.S. Army officer, West Point grad, and help Kyle with, with sit reps. So Kyle, it's it's, uh, it's good to be back on. It is good to be back on. And, you know, the weekly sit rep kind of took a hiatus there for, I don't know, maybe it's like a, over a year. I'm not, I'm not actually sure. Maybe it was longer than that. Um, but it's, uh, you know, we have the sub stack, but now it's also great to have the podcast back. I think the podcast is a great format. Um, and just to talk about, you know, news and, and happening things that are going on. So, um, for those of you that don't know me, uh, which I'm not sure who doesn't by now, um, if you follow the page, uh, my name's Kyle, I'm a West Point graduate, former army officer, uh, used to fly Blackhawk helicopters, uh, got an MBA worked in consulting for a few years doing M&A, and now I work in uh, the tech industry. Um, so people seem to like my takes on stuff. Um, so we'll continue that tradition here. And uh, much yeah. appreciated Wyatt for for helping me do all this. Yeah, well, we have some really exciting stuff. Uh, you know, we won't we won't get too much into it right now, but uh, be on the lookout. Things are, uh, well, things are happening with sit reps. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we even have a, uh, a special guest that uh people have to to keep listening to hear but uh, uh a special guest that's going to be on the pod so um today we wanted to talk about three things the first is the attack by iranian militia groups in jordan the second is defense funds and uh venture excuse me venture capital uh, funds and uh, defense tech startups and the third just fresh off the presses is Elon Musk's pay package being rejected. So we'll we'll start in the Middle East. Um, first, I I do want to just take a second and acknowledge the fact that there there were three soldiers that were killed in action. Uh, Sergeant William Jerome Rivers, forty six of Carrollton, Georgia, Specialist Kennedy Laden Sanders, twenty four of Waycross, Georgia, and Specialist Brianna Alexandria Moffat of Savannah, Georgia. They were with the U.S. Reserve. Uh, 718th Engineer Company, 926th Engineer Battalion, 926th Engineer Brigade in Fort Meade, Georgia. Um, and the first thing that I obviously think about is like those are really young soldiers. They were reservists. They were, um, you know, they were going over to, to somewhere that wasn't supposed to be a war zone. Um, and now three families obviously, you know, do not have their loved ones. Which, um, you know, I, I want to first start off just, you know, acknowledging that. Yeah, I mean it's it's terrible, and it just goes to show you, like, I mean they're they're in Jordan, right? Now they were like on the border with Iran, but still they're in Jordan, a place that really not that dangerous. Um, if you know you were getting sent there, so yeah, yeah, it's so. It's so this attack was a drone. Um, the official word from the Pentagon is that it, the missile defense systems didn't recognize it as an enemy drone which is um, you know, obviously scary for the way that asymmetric warfare goes, but it was launched by these Iranian-backed militia groups. So, you know, that's an interesting, an interesting um, dynamic in the Middle East that Iran has their official, you know, military, the, the Revolutionary Guard, but th they also have these militia groups throughout the Middle East that they sponsor and they provide weapons to. Um, and that's a, apparently who launched this attack and who's been launching a lot of attacks into the uh the red sea and, and down in yemen yeah i mean like iran's clearly using these like militias as a way to like exert influence across the middle east and they fund them 
you know, I don't think they have like full operational control of them is what is what I've heard. You know, they all kind of have their own like agendas. You know, a lot of them are just kind of like regional militias and everything. But overarching, like they don't like the U.S. and they don't like Israel. Right. And so they would love to like these attacks are designed to try and like push or like coerce the U.S. to like leave the region. Uh, and just the fact that nobody has died yet has kind of been. You know, it had like I wouldn't. I don't want to say like a miracle, right? But it's just we've kind of gotten lucky so far. Um, I, I think I posted on my page like maybe a couple weeks ago, uh, like videos of um, uh, you know U.S. air defense artillery like shooting and, and blowing up, um, uh, you know, blowing up some sort of like drones that are flying at these bases, right? It's something a lot of people haven't seen. They haven't really seen like U.S. like uh, you know. Defense, air defense artillery like getting shot off like i'm sure you've seen like iron dome stuff but um you know like for the for, for the u.s to have those systems operational i don't think i don't think it's something a lot of people have seen and, and they're actively being used right now and apparently uh they didn't they didn't they, they weren't able they weren't used this time because they missed they, they mistook this drone for another drone a u.s drone that was supposed to be coming back to the base uh and it and it and it managed to like actually get in and blow up um so it's super scary I think about if like the Taliban had had this capability when I was in Afghanistan, like we would have gotten absolutely wrecked. Like, like, like yeah. stuff, stuff like this would have happened all the time. Like they were kind of limited to shooting rockets at us and still like managed to like, you know, they, they, they would, they would shoot rockets at us bases all the time. But if they had this sort of capability, it would have, it would have been a much different deployment. So like, yeah, it's, stuff. it's, it's also, I mean, obviously this is, this is picked up since October 7th. Right. And, uh -huh. um, you know, the, the conflict that's now happening in Gaza, and obviously the Houthis down in, in Yemen, who are Iranian sponsored, they've said that they're going to continue to harass shipments uh, so long as this, this war continues, right? Iran obviously is no friend of is Israel, um, but it presents a lot of problems. I mean, Biden came out initially and said, we will respond, right? And, and previously we've been doing um, a lot of responses towards these militia groups, both drone attacks, missile attacks. Um, and, and now there's a lot of concern on, on both sides about what the response will be. Um, you know, this kind of gets into the international relations theory of this all of, you know, do we do a, a proportionate response, right? That we, we hit back at their militia groups or, or do we think, you know, that, you know, you look back at what President Trump did in 2020 by killing Soleimani, that was definitely, you know, escalatory. And there was a there was a big kind of, I think, collective holding of the breath. Yeah, you know, you feel like they don't, you know, everybody talks about deterrence, right? And deterrence is like, you know, if you mess with the U.S., there'll be some sort of like, the response will be so bad that, you know, it, it, is, it isn't worth messing with the U.S., right? And I think a lot of people who are national security observers say that like, we, we basically have failed to, have credible deterrence in this area, right? And people feel that they can do this sort of stuff and like nothing, nothing is gonna happen. So they sense they sense weakness. Um, yeah, Middle East is complicated, but they, uh, you know, the kind of vital part of the world where if we uh, we withdraw, I think the consequences are, are not good, especially yeah. for our ally like Israel, you know, like the one Western, you know, style democracy that, you know, that if they get, if they were to get pushed out, it would be like a major reshifting of the world order. So yeah, no, I was I was just over there in Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE over Christmas break. Um, it didn't simplify didn't simplify that part of the world at all. Um, I could no. go on for a long time about it, but 
they don't i mean it's not a homogenous region right it's a it's a difficult place to understand and it's um it's gonna be very interesting to see in the next week how president biden responds um obviously there's political consideration there's military consideration so we'll uh we'll update you all next week i guess yeah yep. we will so, see won't we? so the, the next story is looking at defense tech and the venture funding boom that's happened in defense tech over over the really the past decade and kind of the pessimism that's existing there. Um, so just a little bit of background. Venture capital has poured more than $100 billion into U.S. defense tech startups since 2021. Um, but we're seeing that venture-backed companies were awarded less than 1% of the $411 billion defense department contracts. Um, so really not great returns. And only a few companies like Anduril are getting more yeah. than $25 million in contracts. It's it. I don't know. I, I see so many vets who want to go work in this industry, right? Because it seems like a natural, like, oh, I use my defense experience, get some you know, business and work with a customer who I, I'm comfortable with. And like, I don't know, man, it just it just feels like it doesn't go anywhere. Like, it's... I. It's really hard looking at the the hardware side. I mean, and obviously Palmer Lucky has figured this out, right? Um, they're they're yeah. companies, you know. I think we've all seen, um, you know, the controversy. And, and shout out to the Vets Club, that uh, I think Evan over at at GSB for making sure that Stanford stands that up. But, um, you know, there's there's been a lot of pessimism and a lot of cynicism around that. Um, you know, there's software companies, um. You know, like like one brief, you know, is an example of that, that that they've been able to land quality contracts by by not doing hardware, right? By doing a much easier to implement software solution, and and there's some some stuff there, but but also the contracting. I mean, it's a five year budget process, so in order to get to get into the hands of the Defense Department, you have to basically be able to survive until you've gotten that contract years in advance. It's not you know sign and use that day. Yeah, you got you got to get to the valley of death right which is tough enough in a commercial market where there's more like you know free market stuff it's it's easier to enter and exit contracts right but like in the military it's like the, or the, the defense department's like the opposite of that so like prior to my my current gig you know i worked at for like a year and a half at a defense consulting group i guess you want to call them called acme and, you know, we, they worked a lot with like the like Army Futures Command, Army Applications Lab on basically like, hey, we want to like, the, like we want to work with all these like startups and everything. And, you know, I, you know, after being there, you know, I was just like, I kind of left like I was not optimistic. I was like the Army like really likes to admire problems. Right. And so they'd have this whole thing like, oh, we want to figure out a way to get like startups to, you know, help us reload um howitzers faster like self-propelled howitzers faster and these startups come and they give them all these sipper contracts right and i like i don't i don't think like anything came out of it like there it was like felt like such like a dog and pony show like there were like these technology demonstrations and like generals came and you know there was like all this like hey we, we we're, we're gonna get these guys like a howitzer down and like and they're, they're gonna have it down here at the, the base in um, at camp mabry where they can like you know, like tinker with it and everything. And I just, I don't know, man. I just, it just, I, yeah, I, I mean, then, like this just seems like it's not going to work. Yeah. I mean, the, the numbers don't lie, right? I mean, in 2010, 
venture backed companies received about a half of the 370 billion in the defense department uh spend and it's one percent now so it's it's grown i mean it's a you know it's a 100 percent increase but it's it's not not pushing to much um so we'll we'll have to keep watching i mean obviously there's you know like i said there are some companies that maybe switch to software um and and start to market that um i think those companies you know are are potentially doing some good stuff and Andrew's there but um true anomaly they raised 100 million from venture capitalists last month and they're they're basically betting on one contract that's the other hard thing about defense is yeah if you don't get the one buyer right yeah yeah we talk about like concentration risk right so um it's a uh, i don't know it, it's it's remarkable i've i've just i've heard and when i've talked to like vcs or in the defense space like they 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 just make it sound like it's just super difficult so i'm not i'm not surprised that this is this is this is happening um yeah i, I mean yeah i almost feel there, there would have to be some sort of like which obviously i don't want there'd have to be some sort of like conflict right to maybe like really open this up where the defense department basically is like okay we're willing to take these risks like kind of like the same thing you'd see in ukraine you, you don't you hope that sort of stuff wouldn't happen but yeah basically we'd we'd need to realize the processes we are using right that there has to be a solution that's so innovative um you know like i mentioned we, we talked to some folks over at, at one brief that basically you know basically have made a solution for planning that's very easy to implement and it's so easy to use um you know that people are implementing it you have to but with hardware it's really hard to retrain soldiers right to re i mean you, you flew blackhawks right if someone came in and redesigned your cockpit that's that's not going to be as easy as you know putting a new software on your computer right yeah i so, mean like, training cycles and like how you integrate and use hardware how comfortable like commanders and staff are with hardware doctrine you know it's just all like like fielding the mic model for like the you know was a massive yeah. Like, you know yeah, and the, army. the last bit too is that these companies might disappear and the, the army can't be going into a war and have a company file for bankruptcy so yeah you need, you need a defense industrial base to support you know, yeah. war fighting. So moving from defense, um, Kyle, do you want to tell us what, what, what happened to our, our pal, Elon, who seems to be ever present in our minds nowadays, Elon, literally. Elon, Elon's always in the news, right? Um, so this pay package that, that this Delaware judge struck down. So, um, oh, maybe a little background context. A lot of companies incorporate, in delaware because they have this whole like like business court system right um that with judges that are super knowledgeable about like uh how businesses are supposed to be run and like markets and valuations all this stuff that goes into like running a business and so the the, the court system is almost like set up in a way where if you know you have like a legal issue right and it needs to be resolved you you have like a higher level of confidence that if you go through the Delaware court system the people who are going to be handling it you know, like the judges are going to are going to know what they're doing um which isn't the case right you know like how many how many judges are skilled in like corporate valuation right, right? how many right. judges well, in Delaware we, we actually one of my professors was talking about this that so many it's like it's like almost every major company in america is in delaware right mm -hmm. um 
And it started a while ago for this reason, like you said, they, they got people that were supposed to be skilled. They kind of attracted people to, you know, they figured that this would be a better way, a way to expand their tax base. It's turned into like the lingua franca, right? The English, right? You go yeah. to India or you go to, um, you, you go to Cambodia, right? And they speak English when they're doing business with someone from Thailand, not because of America, right? It's because that's just the most convenient language, right? So that's kind of what the world's decided. The business world has decided that, yeah, the Delaware is the lingua franca, right? It's the it's the English of the business world um, in terms of courts and corporate formation. So yeah, that's, that's why we're talking about a Delaware court for Tesla, right? Yeah, so 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 what's going on with, with, with Mr. Musk here, right? Is he had a pay package, uh, let's say it was valued at like 55.8 billion, right? So yeah, large amount of money. That and, was- And zero was, cash, zero yeah, cash. Zero, zero, yeah, zero cash, so like, one way that, you know, the founders or executives are, you know, compensated, especially, you know, in tech companies, but in a lot of companies is they're given a lot. They have to be incentivized in a, in a way that makes sense, right, for them to work really hard because it can be like a ton of money they're getting paid. Um, and so they'll have like, oh, you got to have these like performance or operational targets. You got to hit like like financial targets or operational targets to hit. And it like, you know, when you hit those targets, you get like equity right? Or you get some sort of like cash payment. When I was going through my, you know, like before you like an investment making internship, you usually do like some sort of like financial training course, Excel training course. And the guy that was delivering it was like basically talking about this pay package. And this was back in 2017. He was like, look at this pay package that there's contract that Musk got. And he was, he was talking about like the options behind it, right? And like how Musk had to hit like certain operational like targets to unlock each tranche of like equity. So like they weren't going to pay him like any any cash. He wasn't going to get like a, a cash, like, you know, like a cash payment like a lot of executives would get. Instead, it was um, uh, it, it was like, hey, there were like 12 tranches to vest. Right. And the tranches like up is like basically like, you know, think about like a like a tower. Right. And like each like floor is like a tranche. Right. Um, and so like they weren't going to pay him like no cash and a dozen tranches of stock options that would vest when the company achieved a com combination of operational and market valuation milestones. Um, and so for all these 12 tranches to vest, Tesla, which back in 2017, like wasn't as ubiquitous as today, right? I don't, I don't think they'd come out the Model 3 yet. They still had, um, it was just like the S, right? Which it was, was a $60 billion valuation. Yeah. Um, and um, and they were bleeding money. Right. Like they had like like it was they weren't sure if the company was going to make it. Um, and so they needed to reach a market capitalization of at least six hundred and fifty billion. <laughs> so uh, so market cap. Right. is like number of outstanding shares times stock price. Right. So the company had to go from a 60 billion market cap to a six hundred and fifty billion market cap. So Musk needed to over 10 X the market cap, which uh, is a pretty lofty goal. If you're yeah. trying to, um, you know, for an electric, for the like only electric car maker uh, in the world at the time. Um, and uh, and so like there were 12 tw tranches, right? But, you know, of like his payments that would vest, right? And like each one of them had like, hey, you got to hit like an operational metric. Like you got to produce X number of cars a year or you need to have. Um, X number of, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't even know, but like, but like there was like each had an operational metric. And as an example, right, how I was on the receiving end of this was in 2020, I bought a Model 3 and they were so desperate to get these Model 3s out that like they were like, 
calling me and like, hey, we don't have the car you ordered, but we have a similar car. If you come and get it like before, and this was like December, like 29th or something, right? If you pick it up before January 1st, uh, you're like, you have to pick it up before the year is over. We'll give you like a year of free supercharging or something and like free, like full self-driving for X number of months, right? Because they were trying to hit this operational goal of X number of like cars, you know, which I'm sure like yeah. unlock like another pay tranche for, uh, for Musk here. So I, I helped contribute to, to, you know, him hitting one of his tranches, I guess. Um, so like, so like on one hand you could say like, yes, the company was like benefiting from this, right. Musk was properly incentivized to like hit these operational targets. Um, but, uh, now that now they're saying like this, like a Tesla shareholder, Richard Tornetta, asked uh, the, the Delaware Business Law Court to cancel the pay deal, alleging that the Tesla CEO must control the approval process and that the board must let investors who signed off in it. Um, so it's kind of interesting, right? Like on one hand, if you look at it, you could say these were super lofty goals. Like the, like I remember like in, in 2017, like like listening to this in my financial modeling class before I, I started my investment making internship, and I was like damn, there's no way this guy's going to reach it. Like, they sound, like, completely unrealistic, and yet he reached them, yeah. you know? So, like, on one hand, you'd be like, okay, well, maybe he did earn it. Um, but on the other hand, like, apparently the Delaware court agreed with uh, with his, with his, with his shareholders, saying, like, no, this, like, Musk had too much control over, like, the process, right? It wasn't, in, it wasn't certifiably independent, which goes back to, like, corporate governance. Like, like, like there's, like, I work in corporate governance down. There's supposed to be like sufficient like protections and, you know, for like shareholders and like separations between like executives and the board, you know, which sometimes gets blurred, I guess. But we also be interesting to see if you can even exercise the options because, you know, you have to pay for the options and you also have to pay tax on the difference yeah. between the strike price and the exercise price. Does he have the liquidity? I mean, he just, he just, oh, just levered up to buy Twitter. He, he could get, he could get the liquidity there. I don't think there's he probably can. Well, yeah, like everybody talks about, oh, you know, like you pay too much for Twitter. The banks are going to own Twitter or whatever. But like he's got like other companies in the wings like SpaceX. Like he, sure. he, basically, he basically tell any banker, he's like, you either lend me this money or I'm walking you out of the SpaceX IPO. Like, yeah, it's, it's that it's that it's that simple. So he can always, he can always get the money. It's just I don't know, he, he just likes drama. But yeah, no, it's super, super interesting like corporate you know like comp thing right and like think about how executives are or people in the you know the corporate corporate world are, are compensated right like so much of it is an equity even for like kind of rank and file too like you go work in tech and like it, yeah you could know. you talk i mean it'd be interesting to hear one thing i think a lot of vets uh coming out of the military their eyes glaze over and oftentimes might not even know the difference between something like an rsu Right. And a non-qualified option and an incentive stock option. I mean, these are all very different things or just pure equity. Right. And and people yeah. might be very shocked to, le to learn that you have to pay tax if you're granted equity. Right. That, that money is not the only thing that's taxed. Um, yeah, you I can mean, walk through. I mean, what is what does comp look like? Um, well, I mean, it, it depends on like the company. It depends on like if it's public or not. Right. Um, and I don't know everything. Well, what I do know, right, like if you work in big tech, you, you'll, you know, depending on the company, right, you'll have like a base salary, which is like a W-2 salary, right? And it's like you get paid it every two weeks. 
And then there's like, and then you also get equity and you negotiate the size of that equity package. And that equity package is like, oh, you know, we're going to give you like say hundred K in equity, for example, and it's going to vest over four years. Um, and some companies you have to like wait a year before it starts to vest. Other companies will be like, oh, uh, it'll start vesting like every quarter or something. But, and it's like, oh, you'll have, if it's hundred K granted at like say a hundred dollars, right. You know, uh, stock price, right? So if the stock goes down, your your equity will go down, you know. Or if the stock goes up, it could, you know, your your total compensation could could go way up. But you know, there's like tax things that come into play, right? Like, oh, you you know, the stock vests, right? And you know, it vests at, you know, say 100, and, or say you know, you got it granted at 100, but it vests at like 120, right? You're gonna pay taxes on. Um, you know, that $120 if you, if you sell it right away, or if you keep and hold on to it, it's like, you get like short-term gains versus long-term gains. Right. And then there's like stock options where like, Hey, you can buy, if the stock's right at a hundred, we'll give you the option to buy it like, at, you know, 70 or something like that. And then if you're like in a private company, there's, you know, like, Oh, you'll get stock, but it's like, how do you tender it to basically like get liquidity out of it? Right. Cause you can't sell it on the stock market and, you tender it back to the company. So there's like a trillion different schemes to like, to, to get it. Um, and it, you know, it's something like you, you need to pay a lot of attention. Like is the company private, is it public? Like, you know, like what's a fair compensation package. It can, it can kind of be tough, especially at like a startup. It can be tough to like, you know, like we, and you and I know a guy was, I think, what is he working at? I think it's Anderl. Like he's working at Anderl. Right. And like, I like, like helping him look at his pay package and, you know, and it's like trying to value the, you know, his, his equity is, is difficult. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, yeah. I, I mean, I was talking to a vet that was asking about the equity at a startup, right. And he, he was kind of mad. He, he said that, you know, they were giving it options rather than a percentage ownership of the company. Right. And, and, you know, spoiler alert for anyone that's not a founder, you're, you're probably not getting more than about a percent of the company, uh, you know, even, even if you're really, really good. I would love um, to get a, I'd love to get a percent. Right. It's, it's <laughs> even, and even if you're like employee 10, right. Even if you're going to a small startup, unless you're the founder, you're looking at maybe 10, you know, 25 basis points. So like a quarter of a percent, maybe, but that won't be given to you. I mean, it, you, you could get it in a, in a straight offering. The problem, and I explained this to the, uh, this, this, uh, you know, fellow student here, um, you have to pay tax. If you're given straight equity in a company, you pay tax yeah. on on the value of that. It's as if you were paid in cash, right? Yeah. Um, the same is true if, if a company like gives you a house, like if a company like gifts you a house, um, you know, so tax taxes can get very, very tricky. So the reason you, you have options is, you know, because it makes it so you don't have to pay the tax right away. You don't, you don't have this liquidity constraint. So yeah, um, yeah. I mean, every, I mean, every, every time I have equity vest, like every quarter, I, I pay taxes on it. And if I don't sell it, like if I, if I hold on to it and like, say I sell it under a year, I will pay short-term gains on it if it goes up. Yeah. So, you know, I get taxed twice on it. Yeah. So my, my friend, um, friend going to KKR, right. He's, he's talking about his, um, you know, Mongo pay package. Um, and also, you know, complaining about the, the tax on the carry that he's going to have to pay. Right. So that's ownership, ownership in the, um, private equity funds investments, but he'll have to pay a tax on money that he probably won't see for about eight years. Um, so yeah, anyone that's going into a startup, anyone that's going into a company, pay attention to what, what you're being paid. Um, 
because it's not all equal. It may have major tax implications. And um, you might find out that you have a $50,000 tax bill that you have to pay or you, uh, you know, you, <clears throat> excuse me, you, you lose out. That's right. So last thing I wanted to talk about um, as we close out, people have been asking you a lot about you know, these MBA, there was this big Wall Street Journal article talking about the fact that 20% of Harvard Business School graduates are unemployed after three months. Um, you know, and from my perspective, I will say that recruiting here at Wharton um, is down, you know, from what it was two, three years ago, talking to alumni. Um, although I also talked to alumni 10 years ago, and they, you know, they tell me that that's, it's only down for me, because I've only, been, you know, been in the civilian job market for like a year and a half. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people are concerned. They're wondering, does an MBA have value? There's a lot of, you know, very extreme takes that, you know, an MBA is worthless, right? And you'll, you'll see plenty of those guys commenting on the page um, mm. in the comments, right? Yeah. Um, but what, what are you seeing? Um, how's, how's this playing out? I mean, I, I would say the tech industry as a whole is not hiring a whole lot of people. <laughs> Google uh, just laid off, right? I mean, at Meta's laying off. Um, yeah, I mean, like, well, the, the the whole tech industry continues to to go through these, like, they had like all these big reduction in forces last year, and and now they're they they seem to have like rolling ones or smaller ones this year. Like um, Microsoft just said they're going to continue to um, to have layoffs. So yeah, yeah, I mean, there's I think you know I think there's a couple factors. One is that like a lot of tech companies feel like they overhired in uh, during the pandemic. They feel like you know consumer behavior. They they like they were making a bet on the future. They thought consumer behavior would shift more online than it is, and that you know that demand turned out to not be true. And then also the whole AI thing, they're trying to like, you know, AI is like, you know, kind of like changing, it's going to change the world. Um, so they're, uh, they're shifting all these, like trying to figure out like the right investments to make, you know, and like, like, okay, it's like, what's a priority versus not a priority, et cetera. So, but like, you know, from my perspective, I, I just don't think there's a lot of hiring going on for anybody right now. I, I think it's more about them like deciding what they want to invest and 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 where and where they're gonna where they're gonna do that um but that's just for tech you know like the other the other two industries like consulting and banking i think are also industries that hired kind of overhired and are trying to figure out like what what the proper mix is because you know it the labor market's still really tight right so like and and they do you know they do expect like rates are going to come down from the fed and that'll you know maybe unlock more uh, activity you know, and already like busy, the economy is still pretty busy. Like the, it keeps growing. You know, we got a really good GDP number the other day. It's like over like 3%. Um, so, you know, they, they're like, well, if rates come down, you know, the economy's going to like shoot back up all these, uh, you know, all, you know, all this like trillions sitting in like money market funds are kind of going to come flowing back into the stock market and companies will, you know, want to do all this investments and everything. So, you know, they're trying to figure out like what is what is the right priorities to invest in, um, and and those are three of the biggest industries that that you know MBAs have looked to go into because they're you know they're lucrative and they're hard to get into, et cetera. But like outside of that, I mean, I I when I talk to folks, right, a lot of people like look at LDPs, uh, like the leadership development programs across like a wide variety of industries because not every not every industry, right, like is. Uh, you know, facing these same sort of uh, headwinds that, you know, banking, consulting, or tech have been facing, right? So, you know, yeah. so have to, so we, my, 
healthcare. Yeah, my friends in my friends in healthcare are are having no problems landing jobs, yeah. right? Um, because people keep getting sick, and um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's interesting. You read that article from the Wall Street Journal, and Stanford and Harvard have the highest unemployment rate three months after graduation, which. Um, to me, indicates, you know, here here being at Wharton, having a lot of friends at, at Harvard and Stanford, um, you know, some of those students are a little more picky. Um, yeah, they are. Yeah, they are picky because they'd be given a job off. And they're like, I'm not going to take that. Right. It's, um, it's not MBB. I, I don't I don't want I don't want to go work for uh, United Airlines. I don't. I don't right. Like I like I met like when like when I went to the MBA recruiting thing, there was like I turned down United Airlines offer to go to consultants. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I, I want the consulting mark on my resume, you know, and like, but like now, like, I, you know, I'd probably take the United Airlines off because it's like, well, you know, like if I don't, like I, I, I'm pro- probably not going to hold out for a consulting, um, uh, you know, job, especially now that like, you know, like they've pushed back start dates for some of these like guys. Like, yeah. Yeah. Know? Big, big start date push. I mean, here at, here in um, second year, um, the hiring, you know, normally the way that these MBA recruiting cycles work is you you can get a summer internship. A lot of those summer internships yield full-time jobs, not always. Um, consulting, banking are most notable. Um, and then if you don't get the job, you can re-recruit, um, meaning you come back. Yeah. Um, my advice to a lot of first years is don't don't stress about the, the internship. I, I think you'd probably, from your own experience, echo that. Um, you can always, you know, come back. But this year, there was it was kind of a rare year that um, BCG actually um and, and Bain both we got on campus um there's a lot of kids that were hoping they could either you know tear up or that they could return to you know that they could re-recruit for consulting um and and none of those firms were hiring even you know they, they very much overhired they were pretty happy with their summer internship class um but there are jobs I mean there's you know I know a lot of kids here that have have been pretty picky um I know other kids that you know realized pretty quick that consulting might not be yielding the fruits that it had in the past the big tech was not on campus anymore. Um, and they got jobs at places that are great, like Kraft Heinz or, or you know, DeVita or, yeah. or some of these jobs. And Walmart, actually, um, I have a friend that's at Walmart that um, uh, he, he went to, a, uh, he, he got his MBA at HBS actually about six years ago. Um, and he says Walmart's frustrated. They won't even go to like top 10 campuses because kids don't want to talk to them. Um, yeah, they're like, no, I'm too, I'm too, I'm too good for this. I'm yeah, not going to to Bentonville, right? Which kind of sucks because you can build great careers at any of these companies. Like, I agree. You don't, you don't have to go work at McKinsey, Bain, or BCG. You don't have to go work at Goldman Sachs. Like, you can go build and have a great life, you know, at a corporate and like maybe kind of bounce around like after a few years, right? And just build your career and probably still make a shit ton of money and have, you know, non traumatic experiences. Uh, yeah and, and bentonville's nice um you know maybe we'll talk about walmart more some other day but uh i love bentonville i'm actually going there in april to mountain bike so the waltons I've, have I've, I've never i've never been but like when i was going through my mba program like um like they recruited at carnegie mellon and they had like a whole like flashy like thing and like they talk about bentonville how great it is it's it's nice it's nice yeah so i mean you know, my, my buddy at HBS would certainly laugh if I told him. Um, and my friends here at Wharton, um, you know, uh, I mean, I didn't recruit at Walmart, so I, I don't know, you know, what I'm talking about. But, um, you know, Walmart didn't doesn't even show up to Wharton anymore because they say kids, yeah. won't, kids won't talk to them. So there's jobs to be had. I, I think it's I think it's hyperbole. I think kids were used to 
you know, walking into the Google hiring event and having a first round interview guaranteed. Um, and now, you know, good luck even finding the job posting at, at Google or Meta or, or Facebook, or, uh, you know, yeah, Netflix like, or somewhere. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, so yeah, when you hear these articles, right, like I just, I think, I think people are just, you know, people naturally like are inclined to not like MBAs, right? Uh, because they're cocky, they're young, they get paid a lot, you know, and, and they can often be your boss. And so like they're rooting for their downfall, but the, you know, the, the reality is, is more mixed, right? And, it's, yeah. and it's, if, if going to a top MBA is still a fantastically, you know, great way to improve your uh, earnings and uh, advance your career. And, you know, Absolutely. And, and MBAs are tied to the business cycle, right? Like, you know, it, like it's, it's just, it's just the way it is, right? So, yeah. So go 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 to go get good MBA. Um, honestly, top you know top twenty like we always say. My my best friend just got a job at Adobe from uh, McCombs. Um, meanwhile, I have kids here at Wharton that are you know getting rejection emails. So, um, yeah, yep. you know, good good luck to everyone still searching for a job. Um, good luck to those who are who are going in. You know, network hard, work hard. So this yeah. is this is this is. This has been the weekly sit rep. Um, Kyle, any any parting thoughts before we sign off? No, no parting thoughts. Um, you know, I'm glad we get this back to get, get this back up and started. And uh, you know, I'm excited. You know, like White said at the beginning, more things are coming, right? So uh, be on the lookout, and we'll, we'll, we'll we're going to be excited to get those rolling. Yeah, this is do we do we have the the hot take? To, or the, yeah, the, I have the, it pulled up because Wyatt um, recommended I talk about this one. Okay. So this is all right. So I'll I'll, I'll, I'll do I'll do like a quick. All right. So this week for Sonny's hot take, Sonny, let's let's hear it. All right. So uh, I got to be able to share screen here. So can one of you guys give me these, give me the powers? All right. So uh, I think this is this is the take, right? It's the take that you wanted me to make fun of. Um, how do I zoom in here? Let me see. Okay, I'm failing here, failing to zoom. All right, well, anyway, this, this founder, so the reason why we want to pick on this post here is this founder, I'm just going to read this to everyone. You know, he's raised $2.5 million, so clearly a seed stage company from some pretty – relatively well-known investors so congratulations to him uh, being a founder really isn't easy so so huge congratulations then he goes on this tirade about he's you know assembling the avengers kind of assembling this team of ultra superheroes um and he basically wants a founding engineer that produces 100x of what an average engineer will produce he wants a storyteller um, actually storytelling is a, is a really, really great marketing and fundraising skill. So don't really blame him. Um, and he wants somebody that can help his content go absolutely viral. Again, that definitely helps with, with marketing and somebody like that is worth their weight, weight in gold. Um, and well, he's looking for three people. So it's interesting because he has four squares, I guess him himself is the, is the fourth square. Um, maybe, so yeah, maybe that's kind of a maniac. The maniac. And, and, yeah, he's and, the maniac, apparently. He's the maniac. And he, and he wants someone, he wants someone that's already been creating gold on YouTube, TikTok, or Instagram because they have such low opportunity cost, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so I came across this post and actually thought about it a little bit because I really wanted to make fun of him, but also didn't want to kind of piss too many people off. So, <laughs> what I wrote, I just trolled him a little bit, right? So he's, I'm, I'm like, hey, look, I've got, I've got candidate for you. Uh, he walks on water, he turns water into wine, he makes miracles, and he doesn't need any work-life balance. Oh, here's the other thing: you want no work-life balance, right? Um, so I was kind of like, okay. You're a seed stage founder, probably pre-product market fit. I know he's pre-product market fit because he's he's currently still building in stealth. Um, so most people don't even know what the product is or what he actually does. And you basically want the rock stars of all rock stars to come join your team. But you also only raised two and a half million dollars. So you, you can't really afford to pay top of the market. So how are you expecting that? the best of the best are just going to throw themselves at you. Um, you know, I can't say that like I'm, I'm an ultra successful founder, but I think that over the past few years, I've um, learned a lot of lessons as a founder. And one of the best things that you can do to attract the best talent, the best possible talent given the circumstances, um, if you can't pay top of the market, some like some of the big tech can, is just intellectual humility. Right is 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 just to know that have a strong understanding of what your strengths and weaknesses are, and really applying some of the leadership principles that we learn in the military. I think that I apply the leadership principles that I learn in the military every single day, in terms of how I lead this company, how I inspire people to give their best work, and uh, some of the leadership principles in, in include things like, um, you know, being selfless putting your team first, looking out for your team's best interests, empowering people to execute, putting transparency and integrity above all else. Kind of these are the values that are going to attract uh, people that are going to do absolutely incredible work for you, right? And, and what kind of rubbed me the wrong way about this founder, I'm sure he's incredibly, incredibly capable, but what rubbed me the wrong way is like, he's positioning himself as, okay, well, I walk on water and I will not accept anyone except other people who also walk on water and want them to have no work-life balance because he literally says, if you, if you, you know, want work-life balance, don't even bother applying. I'm also not even going to be able to pay you that much because I'm a seed stage founder. So a lot of these kind of things that he's looking for is, is really unrealistic kind of to, to use a dating analogy. You know, he, he's, maybe a little bit of above average guy is looking to date a supermodel. He's like, okay, well, if, if, if you're not a supermodel, don't bother swiping right on me. And that's basically why I've decided to, to make fun of this post. I generally also, also think on LinkedIn, people have uh, an extremely inflated sense of self-worth. Um, and, and don't, don't get me wrong, right? Like you want to be confident. And in fact, that maybe like one of my weaknesses is I'm a little bit too self-deprecating sometimes. Um, but I think that, I think a lot of people just take it way overboard, uh, the, the other way. Um, this gentleman was a chief revenue officer of Meow. If you know, don't know anything about Meow, they uh, reached out to us a few years ago, uh, inbound email. And he used to do this like weird crypto exchange thing where you can take your cash reserves deposited with them and earn like three to 4% with some weird, like crypto stable coin shenanigans. Mm -hmm. Um, Kyle loves Kyle loves crypto, so so yeah. I'm sure he's already he's already <laughs> this, hitting invest. And this is back when you were getting like 
basically 0% interest in a bank, right? So like three or 4% for the cash reserves is actually really good. So my co-founder and I, we, we thought about this, like, wow, like we can be getting three to 4%. Um, that's actually pretty meaningful. We decided that we didn't want to like, just take their word for and trust this like seed stage company at the time um, with, with all of our money. Like even if there's a 1% chance it, go, it goes belly up, then you know we'll never be able to live it down. So it was probably a bad idea. So we decided against it. And they made a bit of a pivot into, into a neobank. And when there was the whole like First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank meltdown, all the neobanks blew up, right? So if you look at his profile, like he was talking about kind of how he grew assets under management to our first hundred million up to our first billion, which kind of on the surface is really, really impressive, but kind of pretty sure that Meow was really just riding the wave of the Silicon Valley meltdowns. And that's when every single neobank in the world was getting hit up by startups desperately looking to move their money. So you're kind of like starting life on, on third base, you know, when it happens. So how much of that is really attributed to, 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 to Chris here and how much of it is uh, the product of an environment? Um, I don't know, but I'll, I'll just surmise that a big part of it is a product of environment. He was definitely at kind of right time, uh, right place, right time. Great day, took advantage of it. Great day, started his own company and raised from some, you know, pretty well-known investors. Definitely not a small feat, but um, this job was just run me a little bit the wrong way. So that's it, man. Hope that <laughs> first review. I don't think I'm that good on camera, but uh, that's what I think. So that's good. That's great. Um, yeah, yeah that's I like. I, I, yeah, I liked it. No.